the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Zero. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed the Bob France Authority, and the beat goes on. Thanks for joining us at 7 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Wednesday morning. I almost forgot what day it was uh, with all the shows I'm doing. Uh, but uh, it is Wednesday, the 24th morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2018. Really appreciate you being with us. If you were with us during the Hugh Hewitt Show, obviously this is a continuation of the broadcast because I plan to talk about many of the same things that I did on the national program this morning, and that is the ongoing... Insanity. I, insanity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna have to pull back on that. Maybe the ongoing intentional evil being practiced by the American left as it pertains to our president. Because the reason I backed off is insanity, I don't think, is something one chooses, right? Insanity, no one chooses to go crazy. No one chooses to be out of their mind, to have a psychological or a psychiatric disorder. Nobody chooses that. It can just happen to you, right? To intentionally be intellectually dishonest, however, is evil, and it's a choice. And that is exactly what I think is going on as the American left continues to collectively pool their resources and form one great big giant Trump is a racist, therefore vote blue uh, pack from one end of this country to the other. This political action committee that I believe is being formed, unnamed, is is encompassing Democratic office holders, Democratic activists, Democratic donors, and Democratic media. I think it's one giant political action committee hoping to steamroll, you know, well, if we can't get a blue wave to crash onto the shores, then we're going to get a big blue steamroller and we're going to destroy everything in our path. And it's going to start with calling Donald Trump a racist for everything that he says and everything that he does. 
And it's it's staggering and it's shocking. As I said on Hugh's show this morning, <clears throat> it's staggering that the politically elected Democratic officials are almost interchangeable in what they say with the American media. That That's not supposed to be. Politicians, by their very nature, are partisan, right? Someone runs as and governs as a Republican because they believe that the Republican way is the best way, and they're going to advocate for that. That is, by its very nature, partisanship. Democrats are going to advocate for the Democratic mode of thinking, the Democratic ideology and philosophy. That is partisanship. Occasionally, the two sides can find a place to meet in the middle that satisfies everyone or doesn't satisfy anyone, but they can live with it, right? And we call that bipartisanship. But largely, politicians can be expected to be partisan. And I get that. But journalists are supposed to be nonpartisan. Journalists are supposed to be providing the news. This is what's happening. Not injecting their own personal liberal ideologies into the news to create news that is not real, that is fabricated, that is, to borrow the president's favorite phrase, fake news. And when the messages from the DNC leadership like Tom Perez and elected officials start essentially becoming the identical messaging coming from news media and journalists like Jim Acosta or Anderson Cooper or Stephanie Rule or any of the others on CNN or MSNBC or writing in the New York Times or the Washington Post, etc., etc., when you can't tell the quote, I'm going to do a game one of these days. That's what I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, Samuel, Josh, take a note. Let's create a game show where I'm going to read you a lunatic quote from a lunatic either on the Democrat side or in the media. Not that there is a difference there. They're one and the same. But you'll have to decide, did it come from a Democratic elected official or from a journalist? And you won't be able to tell them apart. Not kidding, even really. I just, uh, you know, normally I do show prep uh, before the show, but uh, I'm thinking of this one literally in, uh, you know, stream of consciousness thought here. Uh, I'm going to create this. We'll see if we can find some prizes. If you get enough of them right, we'll give you a prize. In all seriousness, you cannot tell the two apart any longer. And that is very, very troubling. This is what they has the left's um, the latest PPO. And, this, you know, I've got to revive the phrase that I started a couple of years ago. Hashtag PPO. It's the party of perpetual outrage. This is the new outrage for the American left. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. And with those words, I'm a nationalist, President Trump set off a new uh, firestorm, new outrage for the party of perpetual outrage. Because when the president said the word nationalist, Jim Acosta and the Democrat Party, Jim Acosta representing, of course, the media and CNN, and the Democrat Party immediately had to insert a modifier. They had to insert another word before nationalist. 
Isn't this what you really meant? Mr. President, just to follow up on your comments about being a nationalist, there is a concern that you are sending coded language or a dog whistle to some Americans out there that what you really mean is that you're a white nationalist. I've never even heard that. I cannot imagine that. You mean, I say, I'm a nationalist. No, I never heard that theory about being a nationalist. I've heard them all. But I'm somebody that loves our country. you got to take this in small bites. First, the president's description of nationalism. The president was not ambiguous when he declared in that Houston rally for Ted Cruz two nights ago at the Toyota Center in front of thousands and thousands of people in the building and thousands and thousands more waiting outside and millions watching on television. The president was not ambiguous. He said it very clearly. I am speaking about the difference between globalism and nationalism. A globalist cares more about the globe than the needs of the people in a given country. A nationalist cares more about the needs of the people in the country compared to the rest of the globe. When you compare them in such a way, I'm a nationalist. I believe in helping the people of the United States first, the rest of the globe second. After all, I was elected president of the United States, not the world. You do remember when the president made the decision, keeping, by the way, a campaign promise, to pull out of the disastrous Paris Climate Accord? You do remember what he said back then, right? He said, I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. He was right. He essentially said at that moment in time, I'm a nationalist. I believe in representing the people who elected me in my country, not the people who didn't elect me in countries around the world. I represent Pittsburgh, not Paris. But that wasn't good enough. Using the term nationalist, which can be seen if you are truly listening to the the, uh, definition that he gave, the differences between globalism and nationalism, the word nationalism could very easily be synonymous with patriotism. I believe in America first. I believe America in Americans first. But Jim Acosta immediately inserts the word white nationalist, or the word white in front of nationalist, and then double down on it while talking with Anderson Cooper. That's right, Anderson. I think that's why this question about why the president keeps labeling himself a nationalist is so important. I I pressed him on this in the Oval Office, asked him, well, are you trying to say that you're a white nationalist? What about these concerns out there? Why 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 would that question even be asked? I told you you have to take this in small bites. I said I'm a nationalist in comparison to globalism. In what possible way would you take from that statement race or racism? In what, in what context could you bring up the word white here? When I said very clearly it's compared, and I'm speaking for the president here, compared to globalism, I'm a nationalist. Nation first. How Jim Acosta could then just throw the word white into it and and make a story out of something that was nothing except an an expression of belief in American exceptionalism, American pride, American patriotism. America is the greatest civilization in the history of civilization. 
America as the world's benefactor. America as the world's police force. America as the world's saving grace. We have to take care of ourselves first. And he wants to turn that into white nationalism? You're dog whistling to your base that you're sending coded messages to your base. And he says, well, I haven't heard a theory about that. Uh, and then he went on to say, well, you know, there are trade issues and, and so on as to why he, he uh, is attaching this label to himself. And there's what wrong with that exactly? How does white nationalism play into nationalism on trade issues? President's right. He's made this very clear. He's more concerned about the people of the United States than he is the people of China, which is why we're in the middle of a trade war with China. China's been taking advantage of us. China has been making massive amounts of profit at our expense with imbalanced trade, and we need to balance those scales. Why? Because I care more about the people at our nation than their nation. I'm a nationalist. The president reworked NAFTA. In fact, destroyed NAFTA and put in a new trade agreement uh, between Mexico and, and the United States and Canada. Why? Because we were being taken advantage of by NAFTA, by Mexico and Canada under NAFTA, rather. Why should that matter? Because he's not the president of Mexico or Canada. He's the president of the United States, and he had to rework something to take care of our nation first. That's nationalism. And yet they want to continue to claim that this is racism. Trump can't say nationalism without meaning white nationalism. Just ask crazy Maisie Hirono. Well, note that he had no proof of it. And it's just yet another example. of. She's how speaking, by the way, of the president talking about criminals, uh, drug traffickers, human traffickers, and yes, Middle Eastern terrorists who are going to be parts of, who are parts of the 14,000 strong horde or caravan of people moving to uh, invade the United States. And she's then going to tie that into, again, the nationalism work. He stokes fear uh, and loathing into the electorate. He knows he's speaking to his base. And the words he uses, he, he uh, says he doesn't really, you know, he makes up his own definitions. We should stop giving him uh, the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't understand what he means when he refers to nationalists or any of these other terms. These are not just dog whistles but it's bullhorns it's racism it's basically for many people it's uh, um, anti-semitic it's white supremacy he knows very well what he's talking about even if he professes otherwise so crazy Maisie Hirono the liberal democrat lunatic who tried to help destroy Brett Kavanaugh's life over lies flat out lies now says the president can't be devoted to the people of this country first and the rest of the globe second without being racist and anti-semitic that's what crazy Maisie says i would like to know how on earth the people of hawaii no matter how liberal and blue that state might be how you ever could allow this to be your representation in the united states senate i really i seriously you're telling me that on all those islands there's not one better than crazy Maisie hirono oh my goodness we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Coming up in about uh, 9.35, Bob Paduchik, Republican National Committee co-chair, is going to join us. Coming up at 10.05, Ryan Morrow, Clarion Project. And I've got some uh, interviews that I did while I was hosting for Hugh Hewitt that I'm going to share with you as well this morning, including an interesting short, 
Only about five minutes, but an interesting conversation with far-left MSNBC host Stephanie Rule. You're going to want to hear that if you missed it on Hugh Hewitt. All of that's coming on AM 1420, The Answer. Tom today. All right, 925, now the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. I want to play this. Uh, it's, it's short. It'll take us just barely past uh, the 930 news. But I, I had a conversation about an hour ago with um, Stephanie Rule. Stephanie Rule, as you may or may not know, is a very liberal uh, MSNBC anchor and host. And um, she joined me on the Hugh Hewitt Show. She's a regular guest of Hugh Hewitt's, and she frequently spars with you. I don't know that she is necessarily used to sparring with people other than Hugh because, um, well, she tried to paint uh, President Trump as a, as a racist and, quite frankly, I would not have any of it. I want you to listen. I want to welcome uh, Stephanie Rule to the program now. Stephanie, of course, the MSNBC live anchor coming up at the top of the hour. Stephanie, good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Okay, so the story of the day seems to have morphed from the caravan, at least for the time being anyway, to what it means to be a nationalist. The president, of course, declared at his Houston rally that he is not a globalist, he is a nationalist, and he was instantly seized upon as being uh, a white net. Well, asked anyway by Jim Acosta, don't you mean white nationalist? Is it possible to just be a nationalist, meaning I care about Americans before I care about the concerns of the globe? Here's the thing. This is just unnecessary. There are great ways to articulate that you're a patriot. A patriot being someone who defends our nation and the values of our nation above all others. Mm -hmm. In a perfect world, could you say, well, that could mean a nationalist, too? Well, in a perfect world, you could. But we both know, and we've heard from the likes of extraordinary leaders like John McCain, that's not a word we need to use, because it is a dog whistle at a time when we are seeing racism, and xenophobia on the rise, let's simply be better and not use that word. If it is synonymous with patriot, which I agree, patriotism, I nationalism. I, I said in a perfect world it would be, but we're not living in a perfect world. Well, why don't we and strive speaking, for a perfect world instead of playing to the fears and the, uh, and the, and the racist uh, allegations of, of people for political uh, partisanship? Why don't we strive for that perfect be, world? Because it's not like we're seeing, it's not like we're hearing from someone that has a high moral standing this word who strives for a, for a perfect world. This is a president who it took him time after time and time again as he avoided uh, speak, saying that he didn't know David Duke. The president has already said in the last week, oh, there could be people from the Middle East on that caravan. And you and I both know he's been dog whistling straight out of the gate since he came down the elevator in Trump Tower. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this, is, this is the president who said after he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, it was elected by the people of Pittsburgh, not the people of Paris. Is that a dog whistle or an acknowledgement that my first duty and obligation is to the people of our country? That's not a Those dog whistle. That things. is a statement of, not, of no, loyalty to the, to the people who elected him. That's not a dog whistle. So I'm not saying everything. Is that not saying the same thing as I'm a nationalist? No, I'm thinking about no, our sir. people before the people of Paris or the people around the globe? I'm not saying that what he said specifically about the Paris Climate Accord was a dog whistle, but many, many other things, sir, including many sides speaking about Charlottesville, were dog whistles. But the president, Stephanie, the president very clearly in Houston, 
very clearly defined what he means by comparing nationalism to globalism, not comparing whites to blacks, not comparing white America to to minority America. He said globalists think about the globe first and our country second. Uh, Nationalists think about our country first and the globe second. I'm a nationalist. He made it very clear that this had nothing to do with white nationalism, and it seems like people are going out of their way to find fault with it. Then we're going to agree to disagree. Given the president's history on racial issues, given his professional history, given his father's professional history, I'd prefer if he was extra careful in his word choices, especially as we go into an election where he is capitalizing on fear-mongering. So we're going to agree to disagree, well, well, sir. Well, yeah, we, we certainly are. But what I want to know is what, how it is that you are going to take the position you are when he defined globalism before defining what he means when he says nationalism. It, you can't put words in people's mouths, and I feel like that's what you're costed did. It sounds like mouth. that's what you're doing, Stephanie. I'm not putting any words in his mouth. What I will be able to do is look back on the many, many things the president has said over the years, and it's why it makes someone like me feel uncomfortable. Okay, well, what exactly has the president said recently about this issue that makes you feel so uncomfortable? You know, your, your expertise is, is largely in economics. You're, you're you know, Bloomberg TV uh, editor as well, you're former anyway. You, you know, you, so given all of your economic history, the president is largely talking about global or, uh, nationalism and globalism in, you know, matters of trade. You know, he has often said, look, we're going to stop other countries from taking advantage of the United States. If I have to use tariffs, if I have to start trade wars in order to make sure that we get a better Deal for our people. Is that yeah, not is that not economic today. nationalism? But is that not economic nationalism? Is my question. Not if you look at the way the president is conducting himself, because if he truly did have an impact, he would engage in things like TPP 2.0 and partner with our ally nations instead of attacking us. So no, we're just going to disagree. Stephanie Rule, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. She is. That's Stephanie Rule. That's conversation, as I mentioned, uh, that I had with uh, her on Hugh Hewitt's program uh, about an hour, an hour and a half ago. And uh, I want your reaction to that. 216-901-0945 and 888 Bob Paducic, co-chair of the Republican National Committee, will join us next right here on AM 1420 The Answer. Nine thirty-five. Now the Bob France Authority continues on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. If you heard the conversation that I had with Stephanie Rule, we'll give you a chance to respond to that and react to that in just a bit. But right now, I want to get some reaction and talk a little bit more about the midterms, which are creeping ever closer. With uh, Bob Paducha, co-chair of the Republican National Committee and a Northeast Ohio native as well. Bob, good to have you back here in the homeland. How are you, Bob? It's great to be back home on the air with you today. All right, so Bob, let's talk about. Um, the giant elephant in the room here, uh, and 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 then I know you're in the business of of helping you know get Republicans elected as a member of the as the chair of the committee, but um, we can tie it to that, I suppose, in how this will impact the election. The president defined very clearly um, what globalism is and what um, and what nationalism is. Uh, I'm putting Americans before I put the interest of the globe. I'm going to take care of the people that elected me before I start worrying about the people of Paris or anywhere else for that matter. Um, instantaneously, the left, 
both Democratic officials, Democratic elected officials, and uh, uh, the media, all who are all kind of one and the same, instantly said, aha, dog whistle racism. He didn't mean nationalism. He meant white nationalism. What What is your response to that, Bob Paduchik? And do you think that middle and moderate America are getting sick and tired of this and are going to make them pay a price in on November 6th? For, 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 first off, this is what the media and the, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party do on a regular basis. So it's, it's not too surprising that they would overreact and try to sensationalize and take out of context any, anything that the president says. They've, they've been doing it since the campaign. They've been doing it since that, since he's been president. And, and so it's just, it's, it's disgraceful, but it is what it is. Look, here's one thing I do know, Bob. People in Ohio and in a lot of places across this country that the elite considers flyover country or or parts of the or they 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 know what's going on here. They they understand what what the media some of the media try to do. They understand what the Democrats are trying to do here. These are people that build their campaigns around identity politics and division, and this is just a continuation of that effort. Voters understand that, that Donald Trump and now the Republican Party are, uh, represent a blue collar conservative party, one that is focused on work, on, on improving the lives of working men and women and doing that through greater prosperity and greater security. You know, Bob, uh, I think everything you just said is true, and I would add to it uh, when you mentioned the identity politics part that I think they're terrified of losing the black vote. Uh, we all know where that lies. If they don't get at least, right. uh, you know, Peter Kirsten, my friend with the Civil Rights Commission, has often done numbers. If they don't get at least 90% of the black vote, they lose national elections. And more and more and more black voters are waking up to the lies and the chicanery of the Democrat Party. Uh, President Trump has a 35% approval rating from black American voters surveyed nationally. And they're terrified, so they have to come back out here with a, hey, Trump said nationalism, but he meant white nationalism. Please, minority voters, stay with us. Right, and, and, and here's the thing. That, that the president's uh, job approval among African Americans, Hispanics, and other groups has improved uh, immensely, and, and it's a direct result of the president's policies. We have record level, low levels of unemployment for African Americans, Hispanics, women, uh, seniors, uh, younger people. This economy is has been fantastic for everyone across the board. No one is being left behind in this economy, and uh, because of it. People are taking a second look at the Republican Party, and one of the things that helps us is when, 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 when people like Kanye West and people that belong to these communities start publicly saying, "Hey, the the, the Republican Party deserves a second look." Uh, that that's positive. That has a cumulative effect. You're absolutely correct. We don't need to win huge margins. We just need to cut into Democrat margins, and it's terrifying for them because if Donald J. Trump gets Sixteen percent of the African American vote in 2020, he's going to be massively reelected as president. And look, we we've got candidates that are Camp Beverly Goldstein, other folks that are out campaigning in districts that have um, heavy African American populations. They're taking a message, and and this is the slow process of how you win those votes uh, into our party. And uh, I feel great about it. I think you're spot on in in your analysis of this. Uh, we're talking with RNC co-chair Bob Paduchik, uh this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. I want to um, 
talk about the caravan for a second and its impact on the elections. There was one Democrat whose name, I apologize, I can't recall at the moment, but I read the story. But there was one Democrat who declared that the arrival of this caravan or the track of this caravan uh, coming northward to the United States um, is a gift to President Trump from God. Uh, that this is this is something that is absolutely going to motivate and inspire the president's base, and also moderate Americans who you know they may not have necessarily anything against the people who are coming, but they are concerned about the you know number of illegal immigrants in this country and its impact on our economy and more. But that this is going to mobilize them, and it's going to if they're kind of on the on the verge, they're going to lean to the right when it comes to voting because they do not approve of being invaded in such a way. What do you think that Democrat is right, and what do you think the impact of this caravan will have on voters uh, by the time November sixth rolls around, and they're 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 closer to the border than ever? Right. Well, well. First off, let me just say this: this is a tragedy. This shouldn't be happening. This isn't good for for the United States. This isn't good for Mexico. This isn't good for the people that are in that caravan because it it, it is a a huge huge problem. That said. Uh, I'm in the business of electing Republicans, so it's hard not to put kind of a political analysis to these things. Sure. I mean, this this caravan puts in complete context the difference between the Democrat approach to politics and the Republican approach to politics. Republicans believe that we are a sovereign nation that should have secure borders and that should be governed by the rule of law. Democrats believe that we should have open borders and sanctuary cities and anyone that comes in uh, doesn't have to wait in line, doesn't have to follow a process, and it, it's, it doesn't have to be here legally. And, 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 and that really sums up in contrast the two approaches of the, of, of the political parties. I mean, the Democrats see this as an opportunity for them to try to win votes. That's all they care about. We see this as a problem not just for our economy, but a problem for these people as they travel in this caravan through through dangerous parts of uh, uh, Central America and through through the desert and whatnot, I mean they they're they're putting their children at risk. Uh, they're putting themselves at risk, and uh, and they're encouraged because of the the politics of the Democrat Party. They are indeed, and uh, and, and it's of great. It should be of great concern to everybody because I was talking to the sheriff of Bristol County, Massachusetts, earlier this morning, uh, and the problem, you know, this isn't just in the American Southwest. This isn't just the border states that are being impacted by this influx of of illegal immigrants in this country. They are spreading all throughout, including in Northeast Ohio. So it, it is a big deal, uh, and and it will have an impact on elections. And now speaking to the elections, you mentioned Beverly Goldstein a few moments ago. Uh, let me right. ask you about you know both she and Jim Renacci are in unique situations, uh, and yet they're similar to one another. Unique uh, in that they are just being completely outspent and out-fundraised by their Democratic opponents. Marsha Fudge, of course, has been there for 10 years, uh, and she's got a, a much, much bigger war chest than Beverly Goldstein does to try to get her message out, despite Beverly having a far superior message, because I've heard it, and I've right. talked to her, and I think she's got great solutions and great energy for the people of the 11th District. Uh, Jim Renacci, of course, is a little different because he's well-known, and he's been in Congress, been in challenging Sherrod Brown. Brown's got, what, $22, 25000000 million to just you know besiege us with uh, expensive campaign ads on television, and obviously, Jim, right. $27 million, my uh, uh, producer just said. 
Uh, Jim Renacci wow, doesn't have yeah. that kind of money to match, uh, you know, to match that messaging there. So what can you tell us about the races and how in the last two weeks, you know, we can convince people and, and make people understand that the better answers here uh, are coming from the candidates they're not hearing as much from because they just don't have the funding. Well, one, one of the things we saw in 2016 is Hillary Clinton and her allies vastly outspent uh, President Trump in his campaign. Uh, so they, they, while there's, there tends to be a strong correlation between spending and winning, it, it isn't always the case. But we've seen this uh, across, uh, across the board. Look, uh, look, a lot of this money that's coming in for Sherrod Brown is special interest money from banking communities and other folks that, that he regulates. And, and he scares with his policies, and, and, uh, and uh, a lot of it's from out of state, too. Uh, the money that comes from uh, East Coast and uh, West Coast liberals that understand that, that Sherrod Brown is, is a, a progressive and a radical leftist and that he supports those policies. We've seen that in his vote. Uh, 92% of the time he's with Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, somebody in Massachusetts, if they want their third senator, they write a check to Sherrod Brown because he votes like a senator from Massachusetts instead of a senator from Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's one of the challenges that we're uh, dealing with and, and facing as, as a party. Uh, what we try to do is, is, is make sure that we have the data operation that's available to those candidates, that we have the ground game that's working on voter turnout, and uh, we're doing all those things. But um, it, it does make it tougher. But look, a lot of the, you know, both Beverly and Jim are running grassroots campaigns, and in, in they're, they're working very hard. And, uh, what, you know, the, look, the, the, you know, Jim's race is still, uh, is still a lot tighter than it should be for the amount of spending that Sherrod Brown and his special interest allies have put on the airwaves. Yeah, and you're right. It is about special interest with Chair Brown. There's no question about it. But again, the messaging, I think, is, is so much better. The messages are better coming from these, right. these GOP candidates. And of course, I'm ideologically, uh, aligned with them. But, but I mean, truly, I haven't heard a thing from Marsha Fudge that explains what she is going to do, for example, in that 11th district about the poverty. You know, East Cleveland is the, the poorest city in the state of Ohio, one of the poorest in the country. Right. It has been for the, 10 years. Yeah. What has she done to try to lift those people up rather than, Hey, let's get more federal assistance. Let's give more, you know, EBT cards. Let's give more subsidies rather than helping these people to get up and out of the, uh, you know, the situation they find themselves in. That's that's what Beverly Goldstein is all about. Right. And look, she is working so hard, and that is a tough, tough, tough district for any Republican. But I don't think I've seen anyone work that congressional district as hard as Beverly has, and uh, really appreciate her efforts and and know what she's going through and. Uh, it's tough, but you're right. You know, it's like that that district doesn't have a representative in Congress because nothing's happening for them. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and nationally, tell me what your thoughts are on the wave. I get the sense the more I listen. As a matter of fact, let me play this for you. Uh, your counterpart sure. over there on the DNC, Tom Perez, it sounds to me like they're a little bit nervous, and, and you tell me if it doesn't sound like he's trying to downplay the expectations of, of a big blue wave on November 6th. Well, I've never used the term blue wave because uh, human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. And the reason why it's difficult, and I'm, I'm still very confident that we're going to uh, take the House, and I, I believe that uh, we're going to 
going to surprise a lot of people in the U.S. Senate as well. And, and the reason why it's, it's hard to win 60, 70 seats is because in the vast majority of states, the districts are so heavily gerrymandered. We know when we get a fair shake, like in states like Pennsylvania, where the districts are fair, Democrats are going to do very, very well. But it's hard to get to 60 or 70 when you have so many states uh, like Ohio and elsewhere where there's such a heavy gerrymandering. But notwithstanding So blaming that, gerrymandering, uh, Bob Paduchik, RNC co-chair, <laughs> blaming gerrymandering, gerrymandering for their losses, and then saying, by the way, I never said a blue wave. I don't believe in it. I don't think there's a... It sounds to me like they're preparing themselves for uh, perhaps um, you know less success than maybe they originally had hoped for. Well, it definitely sounded like a guy trying to make excuses for uh, not doing well. And uh, it's it's kind of surprising that he's that far out from Election Day and he's already trying to hedge. Uh, here, yeah. Here's what I do know. We're just not seeing a blue wave in Ohio. I said this back in uh, May when 150,000 more uh, registered Republicans voted uh, in the primary for governor than the Democrats that voted in their primary for governor. We're not seeing it on the ground here. We have a fantastic get-out-the-vote operation in Ohio. Jane Timken, our state party chair, is uh, doing an awesome job. And, uh, look, our, our folks are fired up and going to turn out. And, and we, see, we see great results in the early voting. And uh, it's it just not happening. There is, I can absolutely positively say there is no blue wave that's uh, taking place there. It is a uh, construct of... Uh, uh, the left-wing media that's trying to, uh, uh, you know, depress Republican votes and, and prop up a failing Democrat campaign. We're talking about Paduchik, uh, co-chair of the Republican National Committee. So I, I feel like we're going to gain some seats in the Senate. I feel like while we may have a net loss of seats in terms of what our current margin is, when I say our, I'm a, I'm a Republican uh, right. in the House. But but I, I'm with you. I don't feel like we necessarily have to lose the House. I don't feel like and, – and, right. and what gives me hope here, Bob, and we'll wrap it with this – is the early returns on turnout in terms of early voting. Uh, this is very encouraging for the Republican Party. Early returns are that uh, Republicans are hitting the polls early and, well, not often, but early and hard uh, from one end of this country to the other. That's a strong indicator that things may go our way on actually uh, actual uh, election day on November 6th because we normally are outvoted in early voting by Democrats. It just seems as though that the enthusiasm that perhaps the Democrats once had, uh, the gap over Republicans, may have completely right. disappeared if these early returns in terms of turnout um, are, are you know to believe, to believe to be an indicator. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, people looked at uh, the hearings, uh, Judiciary Committee hearings for Justice Kavanaugh and saw the circus that the Democrats created through that whole process. And they realized that if you reward that behavior, what you will see if the Democrats win the House back is two years of that same crazy island kind of uh, approach to it's not even governance. Mm -hmm. it, it, they will obstruct. They will do hearings after hearings after hearings. They'll push for impeachment, and it'll just create more division in our government and more division in our country. And I think people recognize that, and they're rejecting that. I think we're going to not only win Republican and independent votes, but we're going to pick up some uh, disaffected Democrats. And, uh, and, and Bob, I just want to throw something out because um, it, it, I'm not sure how much time we have, but um, I will be in – uh, with the state party, the, the whole statewide Republican ticket is taking a bus tour 
We're coming through Cleveland on Friday, uh, October 26th, uh, from 1230 uh, to 2 p.m. Uh, at the PDI group on uh, Cochran Road there in uh, Solon. And so that's part of our uh, rally, folks, uh, a week and a half before the election and get them fired up. And, and so I'm, I'm very, it's great that we're taking that bus tour through parts of Northeast Ohio because, honestly, um, that's Democrat territory. And when you're taking the fight to the Democrats, um, you know you're close to victory. Completely agree, and that is great to know. So that's happening on Friday, and and give me that location again in Solon. That's the PDI group at the business there. It's uh, 6225 Cochran Road in Solon. Great opportunity to go out and see some of these important Republican candidates. We absolutely have to take the fight to the Democrats. Bob, keep up the great work. Uh, keep leading uh, Republicans to victory. Uh, the future of our country depends upon this, and I know you guys are doing everything you can. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. Take care. You got it. Bob Paduchik, uh, co-chair of the Republican National Committee, joining us on AM 1420. The answer will get on. Uh, take a quick time out now. Then we'll try to come back in and squeeze a call or two before we go to Ryan Morrow after the top of the hour here on AM 1420. The answer. Nine fifty-seven. Now the Bob France Authority continues. We'll squeeze a call in here. Don't forget, Ryan Morrow joins us uh, at about ten ten. We're going to talk about: um, Are there Middle Eastern terrorists in that caravan? Uh, the president has said there are. Vice president has said there are. There is no. There is very little chance that there is not. Quite frankly, among the fourteen thousand, uh, they do not all come from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. They are coming from around the world. They are using this as their opportunity. Uh, to get to one of our points of entry and uh, to declare asylum and and uh, and to get into the United States and begin to plot and carry out their plans. There is little doubt of that. Ryan Moore is our Middle Eastern ter- terrorism expert, so we'll talk to him at uh, at 1010. Right now, Andy is in Middleburg Heights, now on AM 1420, The Answer. Good morning, Andy. Go ahead. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking my call once again. Sure. Uh, Bob France, our new local nationalist. <laughs> 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 That's an interesting way to say it. I like that. <laughs> well, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You stick to your guns. You've been unusual, and you stick to it. And uh, applause you for that. Kudos to you for having. Hey, hey, Andy, your phone. Your phone is really bad. We're getting a bad reception here. Try to make your point because uh, I think we're going to lose you soon. All right, I says. Uh, <laughs> I thank you for uh, hanging in there on, on the Hugh Hewitt showing yourself. You're, you're keeping yourself uh, right on oh. on the ball. My, my thing is, last night, so I don't know if anybody caught it, on Tucker Carlson, he, Jose Ramos on there standing in the middle of that caravan telling, uh, oh, we got to let these people in. We had to give them some dignity and everything else for in this country. And then Tucker Carlson says he tried to get it in, and he would not answer him. He said, Okay, if you feel that way, in which I feel that way about all all the senators and representatives that are behind all this, you know what? If this is how you feel, like Tucker Carlson said, how many of these people are you going to take home with? How many are you going to put take home with you and you take care of instead of having the United States take care of? And I thought that was a great thing, and I think more people ought to say that. Come in the legal way, like all the rest, all the rest of our, all of my uh, ancestors came in the legal way. And they also, we, and it's nothing about dignity. These people are, no, they come in the right way or don't come in at all. 
And Andy, I, I saw the same thing you did, and he was talking to Jorge Ramos, and you're exactly right. He would not answer the question. He said, how many are you willing to take? And I had the same exchange with a liberal on Twitter who was saying the same thing. These people don't hurt you. These people should be allowed to come in. These people are just seeking a better life. And I said, okay, forget about them for a moment. Let's talk about all of the homeless on American streets. What if they showed up in a caravan at your door? Just seeking a better life, can I live on your property? No, this is my place. Yeah, I know, but I'm seeking a better life. So I get to come in, and I get to sleep in your hallways, in your guest room, on your kitchen table, wherever I can, because it's a better life than what I have now. Are you going to take these people in? And guess what happened? She blocked me. They can't answer those questions. Jorge Ramos on TV last night, if it was Twitter, he would have blocked Tucker Carlson for daring to ask him a question for which he had no answer. News time now. Right back with you. And Ryan Morrow joins us on AM 1420. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.